0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. And here we are back. It's another week with an episode of Hell in High Water and an introduction featuring on Highwater, co-founder, and Gen Z Maven in residence at the recount. Grace Weinstein. Grace, oh look, it's, it's a close series here, and we're recording this on Monday. By the time anybody hears this, we'll know what happened in Game 5 of the NBA Finals. But I know what happened in Game 4. Steph Curry, 43 points against your vaunted Celtics defense. What happened there?
1: Let me just state for the record that you are not a Golden State Warriors fan. You are just a Boston Celtics anti-fan fan because of your nature as an L.A. Lakers fan. Let's just make that fun clear. Hater is the word
0: you're looking for, and that's A correct. hater.
1: And as all Celtics fans know, our haters are our motivators. So we knew that Steph Curry, somewhere along the way, was going to put up a 43-point, absolutely rock-the-house-down performance. We are okay with that. There is really nothing you can do to prevent that from happening, but... Moving forward, I am trying to mitigate and manage my anxiety <laughs> in literally any way, shape, or form as much as I can in ways both legal and extracurricular and extra legal. <laughs> Whatever you want to say, I'm working on it. I still believe Celtics in six. It could happen. That's my best guess. My thought going into today is I want to think about the future and not about the past. Uh-huh. So, I hear we've got someone on the podcast today who's thinking a lot about the future, especially when it comes to this country and our politics. Simone Sanders, is that right?
0: That is correct. The one and only Simone D. Sanders, someone who I have known since the Sanders campaign in 2016 when she was the national press secretary at the age of 24. We'll get to that in a moment, but I've been meaning to get her on the show. She obviously went from that to the Biden campaign, and then she worked for Kamala Harris, and now she's got her own show on MSNBC. It's just called Simone I can tell you right now, Grace, we're never going to give you a show on The Recount called Just Grace, okay? But it's on Saturdays and Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Have you seen that show?
1: I have not, but I love anything that has a mononymous name. It slaps, it hits different.
0: She's just getting this thing off the ground, and I got to say, she's doing great. And one of the things about Simone that has always been the case is that she's a great talker, and it's part of why she's ended up in these very high-profile jobs talking to the press from a ridiculously early age. 24 years old, she became Bernie Sanders' national press secretary. Easily the youngest national press secretary who's ever worked on a major presidential campaign. Certainly the youngest one I've ever seen. I mean, you're precocious. Some people say. What were you doing at 24, Grace?
1: Fielding texts of photos of your dogs for you and posting them to their Instagram account. I believe.
0: Yeah, that's hey, that's more important than work for Bernie Sanders. There's so <laughs> no, <doubt about> <laughs> no doubt about
1: that. There's
0: uh, no doubt about that. That's funny. That's good. Actually, I forgot that you were that young when we hired you. Um, oh yeah. Simone D. Sanders, Grace Weinstein, basically equally precocious, doing equally important. <laughs> (laughs) work at a young age. I said she's a great talker. And we obviously started talking about news of day. There's no bigger news of day right now than the January 6th committee hearings. And we talked after that first hearing. What was your takeaway from day one, night one, I should say?
1: I got to say about 15 minutes in, the decision that I had been weighing the entire day, which was whether or not to have a wine accompaniment with my viewing, (laughs) uh, became abundantly clear. Yes, I did pair it with a nice natural wine because until we really got rolling with the video footage, I was snoozing on my couch. But once we started getting that footage and it started being produced and strung together, to create an effective narrative that brought me back to my very emotional feelings from that day, that's when I got bought in. I got really, really bought in.
0: I remember how shook you were on January 6th, and I I imagine looking at some of that video might have made you feel the same way. Simone, I would say, also shook a little bit. On that day, on January 6th, she was with Kamala Harris at the DNC where there was a bomb threat and they had to be evacuated from the building. What she's talking about in this little sound I'm going to play is what her reaction was to that first night of the hearings, and in particular, the performance of Liz Cheney. Let's listen to that.
2: Liz Cheney's words matter. I saw a lot of people criticizing, a lot of Democrats trying to criticize Liz Cheney on Twitter. A lot of my progressive friends, okay? You know, I love my progressive people, my people. But Liz Cheney, yes, is a real Republican. I do not agree with her on about 90% of the thing. You know, she voted with Donald Trump 96% of the time when he was president. But what she's doing matters. It matters for our democracy. Those people at the Capitol that day, they went home, John. And that's the thing that really keeps me up at night. And for people that said they they didn't watch the first hearings, I got into a very spirited debate with some of my young people friends. And I'm like, do do y'all not care? And they're like, oh, but gas. I'm like, "Mm -mm. the gas won't matter if an insurrection is successful and y'all living under martial law.
0: And Grace, I, the part of the reason I have you here is you can tell me what that means. What does gas mean?
1: What does gas mean? I think she yeah. directly means gas prices, but also, oh, like.
0: Oh. <laughs> I thought there was some chance that was, like, something that you young people say. She's like, like oh, gas. That gas. Like, okay. yeah, yeah, like, okay. usually yeah,
1: when, okay. like, weed is really strong and good, people will be like, oh, you got that gas. But, like, I think she's really talking about high gas prices here.
0: <laughs> well, even though you think that's not what she was saying, I learned something, a new piece of weed terminology, which always comes in handy. You will learn a lot if you listen to the rest of Hell and High Water this week, because Simone, I think you'll find super compelling the discussions we have about her biography. She talks about, like, just what it was like growing up as a black girl in Omaha, Nebraska. One of the reddest states in the country where she was born and raised and went to college and got her start in politics and met Barack Obama and met Bill Clinton. And then the class track that took her from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden to Kamala Harris. I will say, I'll tease you a little bit here. She talks about whether she was disappointed to not become the first black female White House press secretary. And she also talks about what she thinks Joe Biden will do with respect to Kamala Harris if Joe Biden doesn't run for re-election Ooh. and Kamala Harris does, I'm not going to give it away. But it's worth listening. It's worth waiting for. I know those, those. Those both of those have you kind of worked up, right? You want to hear the answers to those <laughs> Hell questions? Yeah. I know Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Yeah! Hell yeah! Okay. Well, then that's a very good transition. Hell yeah! It's time to buckle up and dig in. Spend a great hour or so listening to Simone D. Sanders on this week's edition of Hell and High Water.
3: In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain.
0: So that's Liz yep. Cheney. That's Liz Cheney, man. She was bringing the heat last night and we're here with Simone Sanders and Simone Sanders, another person who brings the heat. It's nice to see you, my friend.
2: It is very good to see you. I'm happy to be here.
0: We're recording this on Friday, June the 10th, which is the morning after the first night, the big primetime night of these one, six hearings. So I'm curious just to start with, what did you think of the hearings, your big takeaways? And and particularly, what did you think about Liz Cheney's performance? She kind of dominated the whole night, right? I mean, so.
2: You know, I thought that the the video selection was important because a lot of, and some of it was not groundbreaking. Some of it was, right? Like what Bill Barr said, for example, he wrote about it in his book that came out earlier this year but it's very different to see bill barr on tape before this committee of members saying essentially what he wrote in his book we can see it with our own uh, eyes we can hear it with our own ears
0: and saying bullshit too yeah. like which is very very human i mean like i'm not dial up profanity but it's just very human like the, yeah that's a clip's gonna get played
2: yeah it's gonna get played and you know what I watched some of it while I was in my office cuz I did Peacock before I went on before I left and then I listened to most of it in the car on NPR on my way to another appointment and NPR didn't bleep anything out and I thought that was so effective. They chimed in every now and then to tell you who you were hearing from but I thought it was very effective, and I thought it was a very good start. I thought Liz Cheney did well. I, frankly, though, was struck by the fact that chairman Benny Thompson, uh, I think he is the best person to lead this committee. He is very even-toned. He is even-keeled. He is not easily shaken. You know, old black man from Bolton, Mississippi. My daddy was from Mississippi. It is... Uh, I thought they did a good job. And frankly, Liz Cheney's words matter. I saw a lot of people criticizing, a lot of Democrats trying to criticize Liz Cheney on Twitter last night. A lot of my progressive friends, okay? You know, I love my progressive people, my people, but... Liz Cheney, yes, is a real Republican. I do not agree with her on about 90% of the thing. You know, she voted with Donald Trump 96% of the time when he was president. But what she's doing matters. It matters for our democracy. Those people at the Capitol that day, they went home, John. And that's the thing that really keeps me up at night. And for people that said they, they didn't watch the first hearings, I got to a very spirited debate with some of my young people friends, and I'm like, do, do y'all not care and they're like oh but gas i'm like Mm-mm. the gas won't matter if an insurrection is successful and y'all living under martial law so i really think that people <laughs> yeah. have to i think last night was great but i do think that everyone just needs to take a breather and if you think that january 6 doesn't matter if you think this is something that just happened you know well over a year and a half ago at this point and we need to move on you are sorely mistaken
0: I never understand. First of all, you know, your progressive friends. I have a lot of progressive friends too. I'm like, guys, hey, you know what? All of you people are gonna vote straight party line Democrat next time. Great, please do that. You know, if that, that you should go do that, exercise the franchise and do what you're gonna do. But this committee understands that they're in the persuasion business. That's what this is. This is an exercise. They're gonna make a criminal referral, but they there's no consequences to this, not even like impeachment. Not only is it not a criminal trial, it's not even a thing where they can impeach somebody, all they can do is persuade the public. And send a recommendation to the DOJ. That's all they can do, right? And the persuasion thing, they're on in prime time because they're not trying to reach progressives who have already decided that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. They're trying to reach some people, some people, who knows how many, a Mm -hmm. few, a lot, I don't know, because it's a pretty evenly divided country, trying to reach some people who could have their minds changed. And, And that's why you put Liz Cheney up there,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think if there was one criticism I have of the hearings it is how that they have been presented in the lead up and i really think that understood for congressional terms we have to call it a hearing but it should really be called a presentation because that's what this is this is the january sixth committee presenting the findings of their investigation right. to the american people because right. hearing denotes that something is going to come of this and frankly the department of justice doesn't have to do anything coming out of this they don't have to right the evidence, though, I believe is going to be overwhelming, so they should, yes. but they don't have to. But this is for the American people, you know, for folks that say, no, I believed Donald Trump's lie about the election. No, I believed him when he said that. It was stolen from us. You have his daughter on tape. You have his attorney general at the time on tape. You have the people who worked on his campaign who were in the room when they told the former president, it is not true. Laying out the facts. You know, I used to work for the the vice president who is a real lawyer, honey. She's a real attorney and (laughs) prosecuting the case. And what the January 6th committee did on Thursday night is they started to prosecute the case of the January 6th insurrection.
1: I
0: want to stick with this for one second just because, you know, I I would be on TV and I would say, you know, I want to know how many people are going to watch. And then I would get progressives on Twitter who would yell at me and say, this is just horse race. And I'm like, wait a second. They're putting this on in primetime for a reason. Why do they put it on in primetime? They're trying to reach the most people they can reach. That's what they're trying to do. So if if that's the reason why they're doing it, the question of how many people and which people are watching is relevant. And I understand the arguments of people who say this is for history and the truth has to be told. I agree with that. It's for history. The truth needs to be told. But if you believe, Simone, that the assault on our democracy is still going on and that Mm -hmm. the results of 2022 and 2024 matter, then it's also pertinent right now, whether this moves public opinion, even on the margin, because you know it's a close run thing. And I think that the democracy is still at stake. So I care about what happens in the midterm elections and what happens in the next presidential election. Am I wrong? Am I crazy? Is that horse race? I don't think it is. No,
2: it's not horse race. Look, honestly, and we always have to remember that Twitter is not real life, okay? I, I am, know, I know, I know. It's not know, real life. But sometimes those are the loudest voices that seem to make their way into the room. But the reality is, and I said this last night before the hearing started, look, they asked me what I was looking for. I said, I'm looking for good, compelling television, and I'm looking for a good performance. And That may be hard for people to hear, but the reality is, the reason we were all talking about Matthew McConaughey for the last week is because he gave a good performance from the podium at the White House. The reason that President Zelensky of Ukraine has captured the hearts and minds of not just Americans, but many people around the world, the fact that he's been able to keep his own people in Ukraine motivated, reach some of the Russian people, is because he has given a good performance. He has a great command of the media with his selfie videos. He shows up different places and spaces and gives a good speech. That matters for rallying support around and for Ukraine. So giving a good performance in these hearings, good television, It matters. And so I really thought that the introduction of video early on in Chairman Thompson's testimony was amazing because I was like, oh, wait, so are we in the hearing or not? It made me want to keep watching, made me want to keep listening. And same thing with Congresswoman Cheney. I'd say, oh, there's more. Okay, wait. Oh, so we're not waiting for these opening statements. We're just jumping right in. It matters.
0: The two things in terms of structuring this thing that made the hearing feel to me different. We didn't know what to expect. One. You don't have all those opening statements preening, you know, mm-hmm. the opening statements are just all about these congressmen and women hearing themselves talk. This story is more important than letting all of you people talk the first night. And so doing just Benny Thompson and just Liz Cheney was very effective. And then the fact that Republicans decided to take themselves out of the, the rest of the Republicans, the, the, the mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy Republicans. They have to be kicking themselves now because they could have gummed this thing up if they had equal representation on the committee. They could have insisted on all kinds of things, vetoed all kinds of things. And now they're like, they have no say in what's going to happen. I just can't help but think that if I was a House Republican, I'd be pissed at Kevin McCarthy for having mishandled this whole thing. They would have been better served by being on the committee and trying to undermine it just from their point of view Mm. than being out of the flight thing and having to criticize from the outside.
2: Well, now we all know why, though, that Kevin McCarthy didn't want any participation First and foremost, they're still kowtowing and bending the knee to Donald Trump. But uh, I heard him on video a few times over the last couple months. I mean, even Congresswoman Cheney said that he was scared last night. Okay, I I heard that there were Republican members of Congress who were concerned about their role on January 6th, so much so that they were seeking from the former president cover, political cover. They were going to ask for pardons. So... Laying out the case, and this is just the first hearing. Lord knows what we're going to hear next week. There's two more hearings next week, I do believe, at least two, maybe three. But definitely Monday, on Wednesday, and I, th- I think maybe there might be one on Friday. There's,
0: um, there's three. I think, was, it's, I think it's Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I Thursday. Believe, okay, yeah, because the
2: members yeah. are going home on Friday. Let's just be very yes, clear. Indeed. um. I, I, I honestly think that most of the Republicans, not all, but most of the Republicans in the House of Representatives did not have a leg to stand on here because they actively participated or they spoke up in the moment and then turned and did a about face 10 days later. It is disgusting. It is despicable. And as an American, I am just like, I am undone. OK, I'm throwing my hands up here. I'm undone. This was an attack on our democracy. They wanted to kill Mike Pence.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking this of Mike is Pence. This crazy. Spe- speaking of Mike Pence, okay. So, a couple things from this hearing, right? One, they talked about that meeting on December 18th where Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn went to the White House. And Cheney says, you know, that they had this meeting. They were had an hour, they were there with them. They were there late in the night. They had an hour where they were alone. And then an hour after that, Trump tweets out the famous tweet about it's going to be wild, right? They're kind of setting up this notion of premeditation. And we're going to get more into this in the future mm-hmm. hearings. But this is what I want to play because, I mean, there are so many things that were just chilling, uh, apart from the 10-minute video, which I think every school child should have to watch at some point for the rest mm-hmm. of American history because, you know, they got to see what this thing really looks like. And, and, and it was incredibly well done. I want to play this piece of sound here. This is Cheney talking about what Donald Trump was doing on January 6th when the Capitol was being attacked and what he was not doing, more importantly.
3: Not only did President Trump refuse to tell the mob to leave the Capitol, he placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that the Capitol be defended. He did not call his secretary of defense on January 6th. He did not talk to his attorney general. He did not talk to the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump gave no order to deploy the National Guard that day. And he made no effort to work with the Department of Justice to coordinate and, displo- and deploy law enforcement assets. But Vice President Pence did each of those things.
0: I'm still new at this game, Simone, but if I'm hearing right, we then heard Milley talk about Pence giving orders that day. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Mark Milley says he was giving direct affirmative orders like do this, do that, telling the military, get the National Guard. I don't think the 25th Amendment was invoked that day. And, and if you it listen to mad. that account, <laughs> not to any of our knowledge, if I hear that right, the only logical conclusion is that on that day, in the middle of the worst attack on American democracy in a couple hundred years, Donald Trump was no longer commander in chief that day. He gave no order. He did nothing. He, he made a affirmative effort. All those calls were the calls he should have made, the ones that she listed. He didn't make any of them. And the vice president was effectively acting as commander in chief. And the president was acting as insurrectionist in chief that day. Is that not what we actually heard? And is that not kind of incredible, if true? I
2: think I think it's actually it's even worse because he was still the commander in chief, but decided not to do his duty. He was the commander in chief and he abdicated his responsibility, his oath that he took before the American people. He swore before the American people. It is chilling when I heard that last night, it was chilling because that's the one thing he supposed to be able to do. Okay. When, when shit goes down, it is the president that's supposed to be there standing on the front of the bow, directing the people from wherever he is at to defend Americans, to defend our democracy. And Donald Trump didn't do that. Okay. So for anyone who would like to purport that he is some like great American and America would be greater with him. He didn't even give a a ding dong dip about the American people, the patriots at the Capitol. And by the patriots, I'm talking about the members of Congress and their staff who were working to certify an election to facilitate a peaceful transition of power. Okay, that is not an American president.
0: So I totally agree with that. I mean, I think Trump did a lot of things that are disqualifying for the future. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But I want to actually stay with the day. Were you in Wilmington that day?
2: No, with- I was with the then vice president elect, Vice President Harris. Now, I'm not saying anything that, you know, no right. one do- doesn't know, essentially. But we were at the, the DNC. So earlier that day, the vice president went to the Hill. She was at the Capitol earlier that day. She had a, a Senate meeting. She was still a sitting United States senator. Right. And she left the Capitol. And she, we went to the DNC. For people who are listening and that don't know how close the DNC is to the United States Capitol, it is maybe three blocks away.
0: Yeah, you, it you is three blocks. Th- you away. can't quite throw a football, but no. you can. but you can but, hit but a golf but, ball, okay? Yeah, you can hit a golf ball and hit it. Yeah, yeah. If, so if, you, if your drive talking. is decent, yeah. So you're with. Her. So like, as this was happening, I'm not trying to go someplace controversial. I'm just curious. Like, as you're you're with her while this is happening. And you are. I mean, there was also talk about about bomb, threat, the, the bomb there, threat at the bomb. It, it's not
2: even just a bomb threat. The bombs were real. So we were at the Democratic National Committee. She was there, to We were going to record some videos. and They were political videos. So we had to do yeah. them at the DNC. We couldn't do right. them in the Commerce Building where we were working out of. And before we recorded the videos, we arrived at the very moment where the processional to carry the ballots were going to go across into the Capitol with the members. And so we wanted to watch the ballots be carried off. I told the vice president, I said, oh, ma'am, they're about to take the ballots off. She was like, oh, put it on. I would like to see. So we go into a conference room. We turn it on. And this is, I think, what's so chilling about the very moment. As the ballots are being carried across and the processional is starting, Secret Service comes in and says, there is a active bomb threat. We have to leave this room. And this, and I was like, the bomb! And they're like, mm, but we're going to be calm. I said, we're going to be calm. So I'm looking, <laughs> looking to grab my purse. This is, ever since then, I always... My bag, my bag is right here with me right now. OK, my bag is right over here because I, I was looking for my purse. Okay, got left, motor left me, but we did eventually get evacuated. But they had to evacuate the vice president yeah. at the time. We did not know. But the the bombs were armed and, and live. They had to be disarmed later that day. But there was a bomb at the Democratic National Committee and a bomb at the RNC. At the very moment the ballots were being taken across, right. we were evacuated for a bomb threat.
0: I may have even known this and forgotten it. But of course, another point, you know, from that hearing was instead of showing Pelosi's office scrambling away from the insurrectionists on that day, they had McCarthy's office, which we hadn't seen ever before in video. And it was a pointed thing. These people were not partisan i mean they were partisan in the sense they were for trump but they didn't give a shit they wanted to basically overthrow the government and keep trump in power they're not republicans they were just anarchists basically right and so bombs at the dnc and the rnc
2: yeah you know
0: their attitude was not hey we are like what people think of as being kind of traditional republicans and
2: they still have not found the person by they i mean the department of justice they still have not identified the individuals there's camera footage of this individual who allegedly placed these bombs they still have not found that person Another person from the Capitol that went home that day.
0: In that real time, I'm asking not for the vice president's point of view, but for yours. What did you think at the, in real time? I mean, I was up there. I was working on the circus and I was on. I remember. I went, I I went the to the footage, Capitol. Yeah. My only point was just like, I can remember very much in real time what I thought while I was doing all that because I was up there and the day lived my memory in a vivid way for a long time. Did you think Joe Biden's presidency is in danger? The Biden-Harris presidency is in danger right now? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But what was your assessment of the short-term threat of, like, what you were seeing on television from the various places that you were and getting information in a privileged way because you're working with the vice president? And then as it kind of calmed down over the course of the night, you know, eventually they reconvened, et cetera. What were you thinking about what was now going to happen between January 6th and January 20th?
2: I never thought – and. Perhaps this was naive of me, but I, the thought never crossed my mind that the Biden-Harris administration was in danger, that the president-elect would somehow no longer be the president-elect and the vice president-elect would go back to being Senator Harris. I did not think that, but my initial thought was, this is crazy, because I was in a building where they said there was a bomb. So I'm like, is this sure. building safe? And the the unequivocal answer was literally we're being told we don't know as we are being whisked out of the building and having to leave our cars and everything there because no one knows where the bomb is. So first and foremost, the second thing I thought is that this is crazy. And I'm so concerned because I don't want to look at on television and watch people being shot at the United States Capitol. But I was so sure that that was what was going to happen Yeah. as right. the afternoon went on. I could not believe that. The Capitol was being overtaken by these people, and there was not a National Guard person in sight. It was just the Capitol Police, and they were being overtaken and overrun. Yes, we were getting regular updates about what was happening. At that time, my fiancé actually still worked for the, the mayor of Washington, D.C. He was in the mayor's cabinet, and he was in a cabinet meeting with the mayor when I told him about the bomb threat and then subsequently the mayor stepped out and had to go to another meeting because she was trying to figure out what she could do to help because they knew that this was a real threat I don't think anybody knew that the overtaking of the Capitol was a possibility, but they knew that something was going to go down and she had been trying to sound the alarm for a while. And so at that point, Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C. stepped out. And as the chain of events unfolded, she, too, got engaged and involved. So it was um, I couldn't believe it. I I could not believe that I, I saw more police presence on the National Mall when black people were marching in the streets to protest police brutality. So I was just like, oh, I know they exist.
0: So I I mentioned before that, you know, if you think about all the ways that Trump behaved, again, none of these things were wholly new, but some things we learned just, you know, that gave no order thing and the things he said about Pence. And Mm -hmm. uh, I always sort of thought that he had hung Pence out to dry, but somehow after that first hearing, it seemed more like, that wasn't just that he hung him out to drive. He was that targeting
2: he him. He was. It talking. wasn't. Yes,
0: right. I used to think that his basic attitude was he was perfectly fine if the lions devoured Pence, that was fine. And after the first hearing, I thought no, he was feeding Pence to the lions. He was like, I'm happy to throw my vice president into the lion's jaw. So all of that, on top of everything else that we both think about Donald Trump, is disqualifying, right, for him to ever be president again. We think at the level of like what we expect from a commander in chief, abdication, as you said before, of the fundamental thing to protect American democracy. Given that he's disqualified himself in these ways, but given everything else we know about American politics, how do you assess Donald Trump as a potential 2024 presidential candidate?
2: I know a lot of people, as well as you know, that are close to people that are close to the president, some of them that are close with the former president personally. And he did not enjoy being president of the United States of America. What Donald Trump enjoyed was the power. What he enjoys is people talking about him. What he enjoys is folks leaving their dignity at the airport and traveling to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring and bend the knee. That's what he enjoys. And so I don't even really know if he really wants to be a candidate. I think he wants to be a part of the conversation. But that's a struggle that the entirety of the media apparatus has to deal with, right? Because you don't want to make the mistake of not addressing it and not talking about it at all. And right. then it creeps up on you, smacks you across the face. But you also don't want to be a part of promoting it and bolstering what would be uh, a Donald Trump 2024. So I think there's a delicate balance there. I will just say this, that I think that we need the two political parties in this country. I was a Democratic strategist for a very long time. Okay. I was a registered Democrat since the time I could vote, but my father was a registered independent and I grew up in Nebraska. So I think that we need two strong political parties. I do not want everybody to be a Democrat or a progressive. I want people to be Republicans. I want people to be independent. We have one of the two major political parties in this country right now who are unwilling to stand up for actual values. And the only thing they care about is craving power. That's it. They just care about power. They care about having power and keeping power. And that is a very bad place for us to be. And Real Republicans in this country, those people who send the text messages and they're whispering on background or off the record, not even on background because they scared of what Donald Trump going to say about how this is terrible. We don't want him. More people need to have the courage of Liz Cheney, because if every single real Republican in this country stood up and said, you know what, this is not what uh, not my thing very bad for democracy, there are other people out there, Donald Trump would be a blip on the screen. But because people are unwilling to stand up because they are scared, because they are spineless and they are feckless, what we saw, what was illuminated in that video last night, what we all lived through in the Trump presidency, it could be even worse next time. It doesn't even have to be Donald Trump. It could be Mm -hmm. someone else and he's still in the background, puppet master pulling the strings, because what he likes is being a part of the conversation, not necessarily in charge.
0: We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Simone Sanders on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I'm going to come back to some of the implications of this related to Joe Biden in a little bit. But I have to stop because I love it when you say, I was a Democratic strategist for a very long time. Simone, (laughs) you're 32 years old. You haven't been anything for a very long time. I mean, I just I got to say. And it does sort of lead me into the place where where I wanted to go, which is to talk a little bit about your background. And the thing I want to do first is I want to play the oldest extant video slash sound we could find of Simone Sanders comes from Uh-oh. 2013. 2013, which would have made you, uh, what, like 24 years old, right? Maybe only 23 at this point, given that you're born in December. This is you having a conversation at, at the Juvenile Justice Informational Exchange. Uh, here's so I had a Sanders. bad
2: wig on. Oh my God. Well,
0: I wish we had the video. This is Simone Sanders talking about juvenile justice in 2013. Let's play that.
2: I'm the chair of the National Youth Committee. Our primary goal is always to advance youth engagement. So we want to make sure young people are not just at the table but are being heard and are being effective in their work. Young people really are the experts on other young people and uh, they want to cooperate. They want to advance the work that we're all doing together. I think the issue comes in when you you get young people to the table, um, you're engaging with them, but then you stifle what they can do so you have to let those people that are dynamic just let them be dynamic give them an avenue to do great things
0: it's like there you are you know uh (laughs) you slowed down just a little bit in your speech not that much as a as a fellow fast talker you were moving fast through that i I just love that energy 24 years old you were a child then a little baby and a child now i want to just ask you this right you were born and raised in omaha nebraska right yeah um and You were born there, raised there, went to college there at Creighton, started out in politics there, working with the the mayor, working with the gubernatorial candidate. And and I think a lot of people think of Nebraska as a very white state. It is a very white state. Omaha, though, has a decent African-American population. There's like 13%, which is pretty good. Omaha is different, really, than the rest of Nebraska. Yeah, and
2: mayor is the national average.
0: Right. So tell me what it was like to grow up Simone Sanders in, (laughs) in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and basically do all the things you did there before you became a part of national politics.
2: It's so crazy. You know they are now this summer they're going to name the street that I grew up on after me. The street the the, the on the street where my parents own a home. That street will be Simone D. Sanders Street come August. Your parents are uh, gonna have to city move council. Your <laughs> parents are gonna have to move on that basis alone. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's insane. The city council approved it, or just earlier this week actually. And I am so grateful for North Omaha, Nebraska. I'm I'm from Omaha North Omaha specifically. And I grew up in like a, a close-knit community, but my mother, she was very involved in the community. She owned her own business for 16 years as a seamstress. So she hemmed everybody's pants. She did everybody's dresses. She was the wedding coordinator at one of the largest black churches in the city. So we were always involved in the community, and that's how I got to meet a lot of people. When I was 16, she transitioned to being an event planner, and so she's like a serial entrepreneur. She's had all these jobs. So I've always been engaged and involved in the community, and North Omaha was a place where when you went to church on Sunday, the executives from Union Pacific, right, which is the one of the largest railroad companies in the country that's headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska, you're at church with the executives from UP, you're at church with the people from the school board, and you're at church with the janitor that cleans in the company. And everybody just knows everybody. And one of the um, jobs that I had when I was in school was working for this organization called the Empowerment Network. And the Empowerment Network was this this group. And the, the thing about the Empowerment Network was, Every first Friday of the month, they convened every black leader in the city, and there were a lot of them, the head of the Urban League, the head of the NAACP, the city council rep, the, the county commissioner, right? They convened every black leader, even the people that regularly would not speak to each other, for a lunch meeting. And the Empowerment Network paid for lunch, and all the black people got together. Yes, it's true, the blacks are meeting, folks. They all got <laughs> together, and they had a meeting. And Mm. I watched for years, I, I started working with them while I was in school, for years as black leaders in the city came together to organize, to strategize, people that usually don't get along, all of them, but they came together, organized and strategized at least once a month to move the ball forward for their communities. And I also saw that when the leaders came together, none of them were young people. I was the youngest person in the room and I worked there. So it was very formative for me. And I got a lot of opportunities from that. You know, I got involved in the juvenile justice work because one of the county commissioners that would come to that meeting, Chris Rogers, was the chair of the national county commissioners at the time. And his issue was juvenile justice. So right. he got me involved in the juvenile justice work. One of the, the women who would come to the meeting, Brenda Council, was uh, a former councilwoman, a small number of black women state senators in Nebraska. Brenda Council is someone that I've watched for my formative years. So I learned a lot in North Omaha, and I really think that that gave me the foundation for what I do now.
0: The politics thing was with you from the very beginning, very early, at least. You know, you met Barack Obama when you were 15. You met Bill Clinton. And for anybody who's looking on the, on the internet, you can go and find this incredible picture of Simon Sanders and Bill Clinton <laughs> in 2006 when you were like 16, 17, whatever years old. And then you're off to the races, working on these local campaigns, working, as I said, for the recall election for the mayor of, in Omaha and then for this gubernatorial candidate who lost. Uh, but very quickly, at age, what, 24?
2: 25? Yeah, 20. You become, was tw- I was 24 when I moved to uh, DC. You become the, 24, yeah.
0: you become the national press secretary of Bernie Sanders' campaign at that age. Now. The story's been told. I know Bernie, there's been profiles done that talk about how hard it was for Bernie, who at that point was not seen as someone who was going to become the number two. Nobody knew. Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, and it wasn't obvious Bernie Sanders was even going to be competitive, and it it wasn't easy for them to hire a national press secretary. Jeff Weaver has said that on the record, but it's still amazing that you had the chutzpah to walk in there, having never worked on a presidential campaign, (laughs) and said, I want to be national press secretary. I'm 24 years old. I've never worked on it. I've never worked on or volunteered on a presidential campaign. I I don't know. I've been doing this 30 years. I haven't seen a whole lot of that. So what just what gave you the balls to go in there and do that?
2: So I was working for a consumer advocacy think tank organization at the time. I worked for Public Citizens Global Trade Watch and I was their press person. And I got familiar with Senator Sanders through that work. And I knew that the next job I wanted was a spokesperson job. And so I didn't apply for the Bernie Sanders job. Jeff Weaver found me and they told me that they needed some help and they thought I'd be a good fit. So then I had a conversation with the communications director. He's like, oh, you might be good talking about this on the radio. I was like, or on TV. OK. <laughs> so when I got the opportunity with Senator Sanders. I mean, by the time that I asked him for the job, we had gotten into an argument. We had had a spirited debate, we had reconciled the argument, we were connecting, you know, I felt like I was like, oh, okay, so, you know, he might not hire me, so I might as well ask for what I want while I'm in here. And he asked me, did I have an idea of what I'd like to do? And I was just like, yeah, I want to be the national press secretary. I want to be on the record spokesperson. I want to have a hand in the messaging strategy, just like we are discussing here. And he just looked at me and he was like, "Uh, have you ever done cable television before? And I said, no, sir, but I do think I'd be very good at it. And I think Bernie Sanders liked the fact that I had the audacity to ask, and he, and he because I asked, he gave it to me. Look, I'm somebody that believes that you have to ask for the things that you want than the thing that you know you've worked for. Yeah. And I, at that time, I had been on, like, 30 different interviews, and nobody had hired me. I interviewed at the DCCC. I interviewed at the DNC. I interviewed at the... D. Every party committee declined to hire me, I would like to note, okay? Yeah. I interviewed Maxine Waters, who was like, you need some technical writing experience. So I asked for the thing that I believe I had worked for and the job that I thought that I could do. And although I had not done it before, I knew that I, you know, I had some skill set and whatever I didn't know, I could learn.
0: Did, did and I hear, I'm glad that I did that. Did I hear you do a Bernie Sanders imitation there in the middle of I did. Of that, a I did. Bit? I spent a lot of time. <laughs> I think I heard a little bit. Do a little more Bernie Sanders for me.
2: I just saw. Uh, have you ever done cable television before? I just...
0: That's not. That's very. That's quite good. <laughs> that's quite. That's quite very strong. So uh, you know, it's interesting. People in politics. Especially when you're that young, uh, I will say for myself that when I first went to Washington D.C., I worked as a press secretary on Capitol Hill. I was the press secretary for the Chairman of the House Banking Committee, a guy named Freddie oh, Saint Germain, wow. who was a
2: lots you know, of technical writing experience on banking, and, okay. and
0: what was also wildly corrupt. Obviously, you want to be aligned. You don't want to. You're not a Democrat. Is going to work for a Republican, or a Republican is going to work for a Democrat. I mean, Bernie was a very particular kind of candidate. I don't believe you're a, a democratic socialist. I'm not, and, and you're, <laughs> and, and you weren't like someone who had a, a wildly progressive background. Was it at all? Uncomfortable for you ever to be working on that campaign because you were not necessarily wholly ideologically aligned. At least, I, you know, on the basis of what I've heard you say, I, what I understand to be your politics. Bernie's like a little further left than you are. Not to say you're not progressive, but you yeah, know.
2: I'm like a, I'm a pragmatic progressive, like most you're, you're, black women in America.
0: Right. I think of you as being ideologically closer to where Joe Biden was. That was a net more natural fit for you ideologically than what Bernie Sanders is. Is that fair?
2: Um, no because there are things and positions that the the president has that i am a little further down the line than he is right and i think that that's the point for me the point for me is that i don't think i have ever a hundred percent wholly aligned with anyone that I have worked for, maybe except the vice president. And I'll say, because I said like, I'm a progressive, like most black people in America. And I, I think that she is like, I know her very well. So I think she's a good example of that. When I worked for Senator Sanders, the reason I went to work for him was because in fact, the things that he was talking about were the kind of conversations that I was having with my friends. The thing that kind of turned me off was I did not speak to Senator Sanders until after the Netroots situation happened, where he was interrupted by the Black Lives Matter protesters. And then it, just, it was a very uncomfortable interaction. And right. I was like, OK, I don't think I want to work here. There are some issues. So when I went in and I sat down with the senator, I had my opportunity to ask him about that. Right. And we had a good conversation about it. And I felt like I understood his perspective and the whole story. The only time where I did not feel comfortable in that campaign experience was when we got into the nitty gritty about the who took the data. And I was just like, "Mm, it ain't really adding up when they're like, oh, the data director is not a senior person. I said, well, I'm not going to say that because no sane person is going to believe that. So I'm just not going to say it. You all say it. I won't say it. When things like that started happening, that's when I knew that it was time for me to go. Because I signed up to be somebody's spokesperson. I am signing up to be your spokesperson. I'm not signing up to tell you what I will and won't say. And the moment I feel like I'm like mm, I'm not gonna say that. Okay, well, honey, it's time for you to go. If you are no longer like fully on board with what is happening here, uh, I'm not serving the principal well, so I need to remove myself from the situation. And that is what what happened there. So, but I think in general, I, I've had uncomfortable moments everywhere, right? Like. You know, there's a there's a really uncomfortable clip out there of me trying to explain the crime bill. And it's just like, right. what right. are you well, doing? But there's something in there. But it was uncomfortable for me right. to do. So,
0: yeah, I mean, know, that, it that happens. must have been I'm curious about that, though, after doing the Sanders campaign, when you went into 2020, you know, you were a coveted strategist, someone who had the experience of being. Uh, a national press secretary, also a black woman, which is a thing that almost every Democratic candidate wants just to be, let's be candid, like someone with, with high experience, high qualifications, really good at their job, and also a black woman on the campaign. You're going to be sought after. A lot of people talk to you for jobs. And you ended up going with Joe Biden. First of all, not Bernie Sanders. Did you ever consider going back to Sanders in 2020? I did not. Why was that?
2: We, the, I was not asked. There were lots of people that asked me. He was not one of the ones that asked. And totally I did not to, inquire. But I love uh, Senator very, Sanders.
0: Right. I'm sure you've explained this somewhere, but like, what was it of all those suitors? Why was Biden the right one for you?
2: So I will be candid. I felt like Joe Biden could win. And at that point, you talk about me being like young, you know, as a young strategist, you are young and coveted, but I am young and I'm black. Okay, so I don't get to just fail up and not win, honey. So I need to (laughs) you only get so many opportunities before they're like, okay, well, this girl ain't got nobody elected. So I wanted to be in a place where we could be successful, particularly because I thought Donald Trump was such a big threat to our democracy. So one, I thought Joe Biden could win. There are some other people that I thought could wage very successful competitive campaigns, but I thought Joe Biden, out of all of them, he was a good horse to go ahead and get in the race with. But secondly, when I sat down with then Vice President Biden, What he said to me, I believed. I believed him when he said that we were in a battle for the soul of the nation. I had never heard anyone articulate it like that before. And if that video from the January 6th hearings has shown us anything, it said he is correct. We were in a battle and still are in a battle for the soul of this nation. And he had other arguments about rebuilding the, the middle class and reasserting ourselves on the world stage. All things very true. But I felt like President Biden correctly diagnosed what America is really going through. And that's what made me say, okay, this man can win because he understands, You know, as the, as the kids say, he understood the assignment. Now the particular yeah. is about how we get to the place of winning, but he at least sure. understood the assignment. If you understand the sure. assignment, it makes it a whole lot easier.
0: So you, you mentioned this thing a second ago. I've known Joe Biden for a very long time, since before you were born. And I wasn't surprised that he occasionally got in trouble for saying things, both because of his record and because of his propensity to slip up sometimes. But I imagine for someone like you, a young black woman, progressive black woman, practical progressive black woman, having to go out there and talk to people like me about when he's talked about the segregation of senators after he was on Charlemagne the God race issues that blew up early in the campaign, almost immediately. Like, you know, he was in trouble on race early on. In addition to, you said the crime bill, which had some components that were also racial, right? How awkward was that for you to have to deal with, given your identity and given your views on those things.
2: I will say that part was not awkward for me, per se, because it's not like I didn't speak to the president. Right. Like there was never a situation where someone is handing me a piece of paper or sending me an email like you need to go say this. That's not how we operated. And Joe Biden is a good man. At the basis of it all, people can talk about his politics. He is a good man. He is somebody that cares and he has been in public life longer than I've been alive. It was a decision that I made when I said I'm going to go work for this man, I'm going to join this campaign. I have to understand that my presets and the presets of people that have been in politics as long as I've been alive are just a little bit different. Same calculation I made when speaking with and working with Senator Sanders. His presets are a little bit different than mine. His vantage point is a little bit different. When President Biden was 29 years old, he became a United States senator. When I was 29 years old, I became a senior advisor on his presidential campaign. And the people at that time in his life that wrapped his arms around him, some of them were Democrats, some of them were Republicans, Republicans. Some of them were segregationists, okay? But he was going through a difficult time in his life, and they wrapped their arms around him and supported him. And that is the vantage point from which he had when he walked into the United States Senate. And at the basis of everything, I need to understand his vantage point. While obviously, it's always uncomfortable, okay, when, you know, the you ain't black, uncomfortable, okay? Uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, I know him. If I ever had a question I asked, and it was answered, and we can move
0: on. So there's another time when, what I would say, beyond those controversies, the genuine low ebb of the campaign, right? The moment mm-hmm. when, February, you know, after, March. after <laughs> Iowa, after, after, End Iowa, of after January, New Hampshire, all of March, right? Right. <laughs> so, February, so let's just right. let me just play this thing. February 10th here. This is right after the New Hampshire primary. Let's hear Simone Sanders try to basically assert that Joe Biden, he only looks dead. He's not really dead. I want to hear this. The story has a happy ending from your point of view, but let's listen to the sound.
2: We are still in this race, and it would be a mistake for the media to try to count Joe Biden out before other folks in this party have had their chance to have their say in this race. We know it's going to be a a hard-fought battle, but the reality is that since 1992, the Democratic nominee in this party has been the person who has been able to garner a substantial amount of votes from African-American voters. You just don't get those votes out of just Iowa and New Hampshire. So we're here to say that this process does continue.
0: So I heard you say things like that probably to me and to other people a million times, not a million times, a lot of times, right? That was the standard campaign line. I want to ask you to answer this question honestly now. And again, because we all know how it turned out. Incredible thing happened. He wins South Carolina, proving once again that Bernie Sanders can't get black votes, by the way, or at least hasn't been able to so far. And then sweep Super Tuesday, incredible thing. Never seen anything like it. All my years covering campaigns just like go from dead, maybe only look dead, but really he'd look dead, to sweeping the campaign, just sweeping the whole primary, right? And then he goes on to become president. So it's all a happy ending story. At that moment, did you actually believe that he had a chance to come back? Or were you just saying that? No, I
2: believe that because you cannot be a Democratic nominee in this country without black and brown voters. The way that the system is set up, it doesn't work like that. Maybe one day it will. I doubt it because by 2040, America will be majority people of color in this country. But- you can't win without black people. And it's crazy to me that the media apparatus at the time was saying, I mean, "Mm, he couldn't win Iowa, he couldn't win New Hampshire. What that means is that if you can't win white voters, you cannot be the Democratic nominee. And the, the truth is that you need to be able to win Black voters to be able to be the Democratic nominee. It is not a, a either or. Frankly, it's a both and. You need to be able to win white people and Black people and some brown voters, okay, if you would like to represent the Democratic Party in this current day and age. I did believe that. And I think that the math supported that. That's why I was so shocked by folks bolstering Mayor Bloomberg when he came into the race. And they're like, look, he got got a lot of money he can spend uh okay well black voters are a lot of things maybe some black pastors across the south can be bought sorry okay i know people are still doing pay for play it's true (laughs) i said some not all of y'all maybe some black pastors across the south can be bought but not black people and black voters Okay, you have to earn those votes. You need to show up in the community. And what President Biden had and still has is a connection with black voters across this country because he has been around for such a long time, because he has done the work. I go back to this notion that people actually do really like the president. And I think especially now, as we talk about the polling and it's like, is he doing well and blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, people do like Joe Biden and we can debate on whether that should be a barometer in our politics. But the reality is, is that it is. And they do like him. And that is why I think Democrats across the board need to be careful about how they speak about the president. You know, he may be down now, but he, I don't think he's out. And a time will come when he will be back on top. And I'm going to just tell you, uh, memories are long down. They long. People don't forget. And a lot of people want to dance on your proverbial grave when they think you don't got it. But When he's up, he's up. So he is somebody that people like. And I think that what happened in this primary was not by happenstance. I heard someone say the other day, like, oh, well, nobody really voted for Joe Biden. They all voted against Donald Trump. And I'm like, well, if that was the case, you know, somebody else could have been the Democratic nominee.
0: We are going to take one more very, 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 very very brief break. And then we'll be back with the last part of this spectacular interview with Simone Sanders here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Ms. Simone Sanders on Hell and High Water. So I want to play a little bit of sound of of Kamala Harris, the vice president. She's talking about the threat to Roe v. Wade. and, And I want to talk to you about both her and the issue. So let's play that.
3: Right now, Roe protects the right to access abortion as it has for nearly 50 years. But if the Supreme Court overturns it, abortion could be banned in states across the country, putting women's lives at risk and extremist legislators are already weaponizing the use of the law to criminalize and punish women. Our administration's position has been clear since day one. We will defend women's constitutional rights, and we will fight to protect the fundamental right to self-determination.
0: That's the vice president talking about the threat to Roe. We know sometime in the next couple weeks, three weeks, sometime if end of mm-hmm. June, early July, we're going to hear from the court on this. And, and if the, the leaked draft of being turns out to be true, Roe is going to be overturned. I just want to ask you first about the vice president, who I think has been very strong on this issue. You were in, in the Biden inner circle from the very beginning of the campaign. When she was picked as the running mate, you went to work for her, right? And you were by her side throughout the general election. I know you admire her and worked well with her as far as I know. You're one of the only people who was, I think, with a campaign from the very beginning, inner circle Biden people, who started at the beginning and then didn't end up in a West Wing job. And I'm curious about whether you look at that and think, you know, that you have any regrets about having gone down that path rather than staying in the job that you originally hired to do.
2: No, I mean, even when I went to support the president on the campaign trail... You know, I was a senior advisor for the Biden campaign. There was for a long stretch of time, I was traveling with them both. I would drive to Delaware on a Monday, travel with him all day, get off the plane in Delaware, drive back to DC to be on the plane with her on Tuesday. It was too much. I was just like, I can't be going both of y'all all every week. We gotta switch the weeks up. Yeah. But I was happy to support her because you know what? When you bring a running mate into apparatus of a campaign, you have to make sure that there is connective tissue there. If she was not successful, he would not have been successful. So it was very important from the campaign perspective for the vice president to be successful than Senator Harris. And I was very happy to support her. I didn't know her very well at the time. I know her sister Maya extremely well, but I was happy to get to know her even better. And, you know, we had a great time, okay, on the on the general election. Obviously, there are a lot of people out there that have never had uh, a sitting vice president in the United States of America, let alone a historic sitting vice president, the first woman, the first woman of color, the first black woman to ask them to be their spokesperson. And that was just not something I was going to say no to. I'm sitting in my kitchen right now, and I was sitting at this very table when she called me and she asked me. And it, it's an immense honor. I felt so humble. Another job I ain't never done before. I ain't never worked for no vice president before, John. I ain't never worked in the White House. So I don't feel slighted by the president or my campaign colleagues at all. I worked with them very closely in the White House. I hold great relationships with them now. As you know, the first lady was my first guest on my new show. And you just don't get the first lady. She don't do lots of interviews. But I love Dr. Biden. I love the president. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to talk about the facts when I'm talking about them on TV. And sometimes that means I'm going to be critical. But I don't feel slighted at all. What I do feel, though, is that there are not a lot of people that look like me, young, that are women, that are bald black women. OK, <laughs> at the highest levels of politics yeah. who have m- taken the reins of their career in the way that I have and made my own decisions. Right. Because there were people that said to me, people that I really do respect. Why don't you just do X, Y and Z? Why would you do that? Why would you say yes to that? Why would you da da? And you know, it's my career. I've taken the reins and done what I wanted to do. And at the end of the day, I wanted to go into the White House because I I fought so hard for it on the campaign trail, right? and now I have the opportunity to go in and implement the things that we fought for. And what better way, in my opinion, to go than for a historic vice president and historic administration where we're going to do really hard things, but hopefully get some stuff done. So I don't feel anyways slighted. I know the the papers have written that I feel some type of way and the people are like, I, Oh, she heard You'll note
0: you'll note. Yes. I, I wanna say I I wanna say for the record. You were not I, one I, the of the people, slighted you never, never said came that. out yes. Never came out of my mouth. Yes. Never the word slighted never came out of my mouth. I, I just know for a fact, because you said it to Mark Levich in the summer of 2020, it ended up a profile that was written by you in the New York Times. You said, I want to be White House Press Secretary. You said, there, I said it. Yes, you said it. I, So, so I'm, only, yes. I'm only raising it because- I wrote
2: about it in a book that I wrote when I was like 20. I wrote the book when I was like 28, 29. Yeah, I wrote yes. about it. And, but at, but you at that
0: point, you weren't as a heartbeat away from getting it. By the time you got to the summer of 2020, you could have been the first White House Press Secretary. would have been the running for it. I'm not trying to raise slighted. I'm just asking. Look, on one level- If you're successful enough in your career that you're being considered to be the first press secretary for the first black woman to be the vice president or potentially being in the running to be the White House press secretary, you're doing pretty good. None of these are bad options. <laughs> yeah. I, I only I only ask you just because in another quite plausible set of scenarios, you could easily have ended up in the other job, which is the job that, you know, look, the White House podium is a big deal. And it's a thing that you would express some interest in. That's kind of where I raised the question. Yes,
2: I guess I will say, though, I think that at the end of the day, that just like the vice president picked me, the, it, it is the president's decision who, to decide who he would like to stand for and speak for him at that podium. Yeah. And I frankly think he made the right decision when he picked Jen Psaki. This administration went through so many things in the first year and Jen had been you know, battle tested. It wasn't her first time at a podium. I think she was an excellent choice. I yeah, really yeah, do. Yeah, of course, of and course. I'm glad I had the opportunity to say that right here because I, I do think that there are a lot of people out there that have said to me privately, oh, it should have been you. No, it's the president's decision, but furthermore, he made the right one. And I am very honored that the vice president chose me and I'm honored to have served her. I love them both and I wish them all well.
0: So I said I was going to ask about Roe because I think, as I said, I think the vice president's been very strong on that issue. And the president was on Kimmel the other night, and he did say, if the court overrules Roe, we have to legislate. States impose limitations that they're talking about. It's going to cause a mini-revolution, which is what I want to ask you about. I will say, before I ask you about whether you agree, do you think there's going to be a mini-revolution, I want to ask you this. There are a lot of progressives who are very uncomfortable with the fact that well, Kamala Harris can say the word abortion. She says it all the time about abortion rights, protecting abortion rights, and the woman's right to an abortion. Joe Biden really does not say that word very easily. He can talk about Roe, but he can't really say that word abortion. And I, I hear from some of my progressive friends, I'm sure some of yours, who wish he was more forthright about the issue. So A, do you think that's a valid critique of him, number one? And number two, do you think there's going to be a mini revolution if what happens with Roe happens with what we expect so to happen? number
2: one... Happens? I think that we have gotten hung up on semantics here, much like in the conversation about reparations. Right? You hear reparations, everybody's like, mm, "Okay, I'm looking over my shoulder. Like, what we what we talk we talk about a check? What we talking about?" <laughs> and so the word reparations shuts people some, down in the conversation to a point where they can't even have a high level conversation about the impact of slavery in the United States of America. Now we know that California has issued a report. I frankly in this moment, think of the word abortion in the same way. What we are talking about is a woman's ability to make the decisions about her own body and about her health care. And if that decision is an abortion, she should be able to do that. And we are talking about the ability for women to make decisions about their own bodies being taken away, and not only taken away, being criminalized in many places across the country when Roe is overturned. Because at this point, it's not an if, it is a win. I find it very hard to believe the justice have all of a sudden had to change a heart, some of them. So I think that people are caught up on semantics. I think we are in uh, a war footing right now when it comes to a number of these civil liberties and civil rights issues, whether we're talking about the LGBTQ plus community, whether we're talking about the right to vote, whether we're talking about access to the health care that a woman needs, abortion, In war footing, we need not get caught up on semantics. Some of these same people that are like, oh, the president ain't said abortion. These were the same folks that on the campaign trail, I was in the meetings with them and they were like, we don't know if he's gonna protect our rights. We don't know. If Roe comes under assault, I don't know. If he's the president, he is gonna be willing to stand up for us. And look now. He is standing up. This administration is, in fact, standing up. I think the vice president has been excellent because she just has a unique ability to lay out the facts and prosecute the case and make it plain for people. This is something she's been doing her entire career. And frankly, she warned of the threat of Roe during the Kavanaugh hearings and questioning then Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh. She asked the right questions. And so this is something so uniquely in her wheelhouse because she's been doing it for a while. Do I think this is going to start a mini revolution? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know because parts of this conversation are turning to where is there not space in the Democratic Party for anti-abortion Democrats? What we are talking about, you don't need to personally believe that you yourself will go out and get an abortion or you would pay for an abortion for your, your daughter, your sister, your cousin, whoever. But the question on the table is, do you believe that your personal beliefs should hinder my ability to make decisions about my own body? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you not my kind of person. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, or whatever. Because where are the bills to legislate the penises? <laughs> where am well, I? At? I don't um, see them.
0: I gotta say, I, I'm, since A, I can say this, I'm on your side on the women's thing. <laughs> and not only because of what you just said, but I also am really glad that there are no bills trying to legislate the penis system. Just, I just want to say on the record that I would be against those two. I'm against legislating on anybody's private parts. I have three more questions for you. I want to play one last piece of sound. Here's a guy I, who I love. I played this for people occasionally before and I want to know what you think about it. Here's Killer Mike from Run the Jewels talking on we Bill. We
2: Killer Mike. He's
0: on with Bill Maher in October of 2021. This piece of sound, I want to hear it then get you to react.
2: On the behalf of the black community, I could tell you something. We were promised $45 million in college funds, 45 billion we're getting to. We were promised better law enforcement, qualified immunity stands. We don't have a George Floyd Act. Um, we were also told that like, Cori Bush came out of um, Missouri and she said, we're not even in the infrastructure.
0: So that is basically a thing that I have heard from many black voters over the last year or so, which is basically disappointment believed in Joe Biden. They don't hate Joe Biden now, but they are disappointed by what they have yeah. gotten. And that is a very well-stated version of it by my friend, Mike. I'm curious what what you say to your black friends who, as you just nodded your head when I said, I hear this from from black people all the time. I know you hear it. You must hear it too, as you were nodding. It's something I hear from a lot of black people who are like disappointed, like frustrated. What do you say to them? and, And how much of a problem do you think it is for Joe Biden's political future? If there's a big disappointed part of the Democratic base that invested a lot of hope in him?
2: Yeah, look, I think that as we just discussed in this conversation, there was no Democratic nominee without Black people, and there is no President Biden and Vice President Harris without Black voters, Latino voters, and in Georgia, Black and AAPI voters. Let's just be very clear, because that's who put him over the hump in uh, Georgia. Look, I, I will say this. I think that a lot of things have actually been done. In that clip, Killer Mike cites only $2 billion for HBCUs, when actually there had been more, but... There was a, a carbuffle and. The numbers were not getting out there to the point where that happened while I was still at the White House. We ended up issuing a fact sheet. Okay, well, you got to issue a fact sheet and then print the fact sheet out and ask everybody to email the fact sheet to everybody. We in a real tough place. And they had to issue the fact sheet because there was so much misinformation about what it was and wasn't happening for HBCUs. So I do think that there is a real disconnect between what people think has happened and what has actually happened. But the fact does remain that there is no George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that has been signed. But the president did do an executive order, right? But there was a promise of George Floyd Justice Policing Act There well, there's Congress that has a role to play here. The, the student loan debate is an outstanding debate that is still happening. I interviewed the Secretary Cardona myself, and I was like, we was having these conversations. I was at the White House. What is the hold up?" And now we are hearing, haven't seen it yet, but again, hearing that the president is going to keep his promise for at least $10,000 of debt, but there now will be some kind of income restriction on it. And it might not make as much of a difference for these Democrats in this midterm election on these particular issues, but it will make a difference when it comes to the re-elect for this president and vice president to go out there and forcefully defend and talk about what you have done. John, I can count on like four hands Four hands on four, one hand, four fingers. The people, I'm like, four hands, wait, need my coffee. Who are willing to like, you know, rough some people up about the defense of this administration. And you're going to need a lot more than that. Like people need to stop being timid about what has been done and speak on it and just keep it real. Instead of they doing this, when they go low, we go high. When they go low, Democrats need to go toe to toe. If more of that is done, then there's a chance. But I do think that there's a lot of apathy out there from Black voters who say, look, we did all of this and we don't really feel like we got much. And the answer is, well, actually, we have gotten a lot. Like, let's just look at where you were two years ago compared to now. And undoubtedly, life is better, okay, in America since Joe Biden has been president. But are they actively making the case so that people feel like that is true, especially black voters in America? And I think it's very fair to say that some additional work needs to be done. But they got time to do it.
0: I've heard what you said about the question of whether Biden's going to run again, which is basically, you know, if the man wants to run again, let him run again. And yes, obviously, he's the president. peace, peace, peace. We don't even have to spend time on it because. As far as I know, there's only one person who's beaten Donald Trump in a presidential election. He's one to zero against Donald is Joe, Trump. His Joseph name is Joe Biden. Biden. So he's he should do what he wants. We all agree with that. About that. What does your gut say that he will stand for election? My gut says
2: that not? he. My gut says that he will.
0: Okay. Um,
2: and in the event that he doesn't, chaos, honey. Okay. But in the event that he doesn't, chaos, and I still think Vice President Harris ends up as the Democratic nominee.
0: Sorry, If he doesn't, you think she ends up, Harris ends up being, even through the chaos, ends up being the Democratic nominee?
2: Yes, because let me tell you why. There's not a better stage in America than the bully pulpit of the presidency and the vice presidency. While all of these other candidates will be out here trying to do all these different things, Kamala Harris will be hopping on and off Air Force Two, being the vice president, doing her due diligence and her job, and she would have to have the backing of the president who said that he picked her because he thought she'd be ready on day one. He picked her because she is the future of the party. And so all of the promises that were made about the kind of running mate he would choose You got to make good on those. So he would then have to give a forceful endorsement of her. This is not a a 2016 Obama-Biden situation.
0: So here's my last question, which is just about you. So coming back to the Simone Sanders, who's now the host of a show called Simone on MSNBC, right? Now, I was delighted when I saw you do the, the first episode of the show. You talked about how you'd always dreamed of... Of doing this, and that when you were a little girl growing up in North Omaha, I've been—I stand corrected yeah. now. I can't just say Omaha; I gotta say North Omaha because that makes it seem like I know what I'm talking about. Like I really know <laughs> all the different like neighborhoods in Omaha, and your childhood in North Omaha—that there was uh, a lot of play acting around being future anchor lady.
2: Yes, Donna Burns.
0: I—I I heard you mention Donna Burns once, but I want you just to, to end our little talk here today by talking about. little girl, Simone Sanders, with her hairbrush or her spoon or whatever she was pretending to be an anchor lady and who Donna Burns was. And are you having fun? Like all that, give us the one big answer on how great or scary or whatever it is to be actually having your childhood dream come true and being on the show.
2: I'm just so excited. So many people have been like, oh, are you going back to politics? I'm like, uh, I enjoy what I'm doing right now, okay? I'm a host of a show, Saturday and Sundays, 4 p.m. on MSNBC, and I host a show on streaming Monday and Tuesday on Peacock on MSNBC, and I'm having a great time. Donna Burns, I have a pen right here. I used to pick up a pen or anything, and I'd be in my kitchen. I'd say, this is Donna Burns reporting live. I don't know who Donna Burns worked <laughs> for. I don't know. I don't know. She was probably a freelance journalist, honey, I think. I don't, I don't even think she was on the E. She was a field reporter. And now we have a joke on my team, actually, that we don't want to give Donna Burns. We want to make sure we're giving Simone unless it is very serious breaking news coverage. And then we got to turn Donna Burns on because we need to give the people just a straight up factual information. And so one of my earlier shows It was the day that the mass shooting in Buffalo happened. Mm -hmm. I was on the air when we got the news. Mm -hmm. So I had to break in with the breaking news. And I didn't have the, you know how it is, John. You've been hosting for a while. You got the papers in front of you, but I had a paper. So I'm looking in the teleprompter. It's in my ear. I'm just like, just read it, read it straight up, read it straight up. And I did, and I did it. And it was a, a very sad day, but I was happy that I had done my anchor boot camp so I was ready to handle the breaking news. But I'm having a good time. I always try to bring different angles and aspects to my show. Like, why you wanna watch my show is because I'm gonna give you some insight. You know, I'm going to talk to some people that other people aren't talking to. I'm going to give you insight from what people could are thinking in the White House. I'm going to give you some insight from my friends on Capitol Hill. But we're also going to talk about culture, right? I've got, I, I interviewed Candy Burris on my show. I've got Ajene Ellis. Uh, I, I believe she was nominated for an Academy Award. King Richard, she played uh, Venus and Serena's mother in the right. movie King Richard. Got her on this weekend. But we're also talking to Stacey Abrams, right? So we're running the gamut. We're talking to the young people who are going to be out there for the March for Our Lives rally. So... I am just so excited to be able to facilitate the conversation. As a guest, you are, as you know, a part of the conversation. But when you are the host and you're in the anchor chair, you are deciding what the conversation is then facilitating that conversation so that the people who are watching or listening to you can hopefully learn something new. and that's what
0: I'm excited about. Well, A, it's great to see you on the show. B, it's great to have anybody's dreams come true. C, I will say that although I was a fan of Donna Burns, I don't think she had as much range as you. She was not, <laughs> Donna Burns, she did local weather better than you do it, but she uh, yeah. she doesn't have the cultural or political savvy that you do. So I'm glad they hired Simone Sanders rather than Donna Burns because, like, I think, you Me know,
2: too. I
0: think Me it's too. better. And Donna would not have been a great name for a show. Simone. Well,
2: they would have named it something else. I'm, but. I'm aware.
0: I, I, just, I just think I'd I have had Donna. Uh, nah, nah, nah. Simone Sanders, thank you for taking the time. You are just always a delight to spend any amount of time thank with. Thank
2: you. Thank you, John. I'm curtsying in my kitchen.
0: Helen Highwater is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Simone Sanders for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen Highwater and share us, and rate us, and review us. On whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and also engineered the podcast. Margot Gray is our researcher and assistant producer. And Marshall Eisen, the man, the myth, the legend, is our executive producer.